0: Well, let's get started. We're going to open with a single verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's verse 6. This is Paul speaking. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and how for each of us you have, in a divine and a supernatural way, shined into our hearts so that we could esteem Christ as is fitting or at least moving fundamentally in that direction, though we confess we have an infinite distance to travel and into all eternity. We will still be traveling closer and closer and closer to that adoration that Jesus Christ Himself is worthy of in all of His infinite excellencies. Help us to center our thoughts around Him and His activity in this world, even from heaven. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, last time, actually the last several times, we've been uh, discussing Jonathan Edwards. Uh, We looked at his conversion. uh, We looked at his entrance into the ministry under his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. uh, Some of the dullness that he uh, said was uh, pervasive in Northampton, in New England in general, in the early years of the 1730s. And then we moved into that that awakening in Northampton uh, we, we went through a few of his sermons and then uh, last time two weeks ago we looked at his sermon the justice of God and the damnation of sinners and the, the climax of the awakening there at the end of 1734 and at the beginning of 1735 uh, now from that point, but still in that same time period, the end of 1734, 1735, as I hinted at at the very end of last time, uh, across the Atlantic, a young English student at Oxford was being effectually called in, in a very similar way as as materially speaking what we saw was going on in the awakening at Northampton. That same kind of conviction, that same kind of striving, if you will, after the flesh, uh, men justifying themselves and their labors before God, and as we saw Edwards, just like a laser, uh, dissecting their their carnal motives and showing that they were actually guilty before God when in fact they thought that they were deserving of God's favor, and how that brought this this tremendous sense of of conviction of sin, and then... uh, what, what came as a consequence of that sense of, of depth and, and lowness and self-condemnation, uh, a, a, a uh, reciprocal, so to speak, uh, glimpse into the glory and the, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for their needs. Well, this young man, as, as you know by the handout that you're hopefully uh, holding in front of you, is, was George Whitfield. Now, uh, George Whitfield is is really the grand, compelling figure of the Great Awakening. Edwards and Whitfield together—you could put them both together and say that they're the pillars, the two pillars of the Great Awakening. You could even you could even draw an analogy uh, back to the Reformation and say they're something like the Luther and the Calvin of the Great Awakening. Uh, that that was the stature that they held. Uh, even though one was an Englishman, one was an American. Well, actually, uh, they were both Englishmen because uh, the United States had not yet been formed. But one was in America and one was in England, although the one that was in England came to America, oh my, uh, I forget how many times, maybe seven times he traveled across the Atlantic in the course of his lifetime. And we'll get in a couple of weeks into his first trip to America. And that's when the Great Awakening in earnest uh, begins at the very end of 1739, but we're not there yet. Uh, this morning, we just want to look at uh, his early years, his his years that he struggled up unto his conversion, uh, and then at the very end, just very briefly, his commission into gospel preaching. And uh, that's as far as we will get this morning. Now, there's so many accolades uh, uh, poured out upon Whitfield. There's been many, many uh, that have called him the greatest preacher that that England ever saw. J. C. Ryle would have been one of those. Martin Lloyd Jones would have been another. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said much the same thing. Charles Spurgeon would have been about the only one, perhaps, that would be in the same orbit as Whitfield that you could say, well, he might he might be in the running for the greatest. You know, if we're going to have a contest. Uh, But yes, John. Jones. Ah, well, uh, <laughs> yes, he would be in the running, too. I'm sorry. I, I, my mind's too, entrenched too far back in history. Uh, but you're, you're right. He would be in the running, too. Uh, both of those men, Lloyd-Jones and uh, Spurgeon, uh, did very respectfully give place to Whitfield as the greatest. So we'll we'll respect their opinions too, and stick with Whitfield as, as the greatest. If there's one, if there's one preacher, I would have loved to have heard simply to hear his voice alone. It would be Whitfield. He he uh, he had a reputation in terms of the, the the sonorous power and resonance of of his voice that he could reach so many. You you may recall if you read the the autobiography of Ben Franklin when Ben Franklin came to Philadelphia and heard Whitfield preach. And uh, he, he, was, he, he, he did an experiment, as as Franklin, we know, was, was wont to do. And he kept stepping backwards and measuring the number of steps where he could still hear Whitfield's voice until he got far enough. And then he looked at the mass of people that were around Whitfield and multiplied the number of heads To figure out how many could have actually heard him, and he came up with a figure of like 30,000 or something like that uh, outdoors. Uh, You may have also read how Whitfield uh, had heard before he, I'm sorry, how Franklin had heard before he came to listen to Whitfield how overpowering Whitfield's sermons could be, and how at the time Whitfield, I'm getting ahead of myself here by quite a bit, but how Whitfield had uh, He had begun an orphanage in Georgia, and he was raising money for it wherever he went and so sometimes he would make an appeal for contributions for this orphanage for for young boys in savannah georgia and and Franklin was determined that he was not going to give any money and uh, so he he went without any money in his pockets because I believe the first time he went uh, he was determined. He said, "I'm not going to give anything." And then, like as Whitfield was getting through the sermon, he said, "Okay, I'll give one little one little coin." And then, "Okay, I'll give another." And then he ended up emptying his pockets because he was so overpowered uh, by Whitfield's appeal. But nonetheless, that's that's not part of our story this morning. Uh, but I just anecdotally thought I'd I'd uh, say those things. So. Whitfield dates the time of his conversion, which we're chiefly interested in this morning, uh, by the church calendar. He was, a, he was an Anglican, he was an Anglican minister, he was raised in the Anglican church. So he dates his conversion uh, by the church calendar seven weeks after the end of Lent. So that would have been probably towards the end of May or so in the year 1735. So if you think about it again, go back to the awakening in Northampton and uh, we at exactly the same time the the, the first several months in seventeen thirty five that is when things are 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 culminating in the agonies of George Whitfield that led up to his conversion so this is what what he says about his conversion in brief, and we'll get into this more in in in, uh, in the next several minutes, after having undergone innumerable Buffetings of Satan in many months, inexpressible trials by night and day. God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold on his dear son by a living faith. Well, that right there, in very succinct form, autobiographically, uh, Whitfield is laying out the doctrine of effectual calling that we've been talking about so much in this class. Uh, after going through these innumerable buffetings, uh, which which God had had uh, uh, orchestrated, you might say, for Whitfield, uh, for him to be pressed out of himself. God was pleased. Again, I'm repeating. God was pleased, says Whitfield, at length to remove that heavy load and to enable me. That's a good effectual calling word. That's that's right there uh, in the shorter Catechism uh, to enable me to lay hold on His Son. By a living faith. Well, it, it's important to know, and I hope you have been noticing, that wherever you have these, these, these almost violent, you might say, divine actings on the souls of men, and it is a divine act, uh, you have correspondingly this vigorous, lively uh, action that is emanating from the human will. So we've, we've, we've seen that argument that's gone on about the freedom of the will and so forth. Well, yes, God does his part, but man must do his part. Certainly true, but, but we may be using the wrong language there when we, when we, when we, when we, we talk that way. Man does indeed do his part, uh, but it is the part that, that, that God has compelled from him, if you will, because of that effectual calling. So you have the divine acting of God upon the soul of man, you have those vigorous and intense actings of the human will. And we, we don't want to mistake or confuse the means and the cause, or the cause and the effect. Well, this is what we want to follow in uh, Whitfield's own account of himself out of his journal, which is is readily available. You can purchase that. Uh, it's a great read. And this is largely what we're drawing from his own journals when, when we're going to be quoting him at length as we go through his account. So he was born December sixteenth, seventeen fourteen, in Gloucester, England. Gloucester, England is where William Tyndale, uh, the great Bible translator, was born. Also, so Gloucester in England was very rich, uh, with a religious, with a with a Protestant evangelical tradition. So this is where Whitfield was born. His father and mother kept an inn called the Bell Inn. Uh, although when Whitfield was Just two years old, his father died, uh, leaving his mother sole proprietor of the Bell Inn and and in dire straits to a large degree. So Whitfield grew up in his very, very early years, from as early as he could remember, being what he called a common drawer there at the inn. I mean, basically a a servant boy, waiting tables, mopping, cleaning, uh, so forth. Uh, This was his, his... His earliest occupation as the son of the proprietor. In almost the first words of his journal, and you see this moral, this 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 strong moral bent immediately, he says, he says, as he's thinking back to his childhood, he said, I can truly say I was froward from my mother's womb. Uh, He he lists quite a number of sins, lying and cursing, were among the foremost that he condemned himself for. Uh, He says this, Stealing from my mother, I thought no theft at all at the time, and I used to make no scruple of taking money out of her pocket before she was up in the morning to buy fruits and tarts and the like. So just just pilfering from his mother's purse and, and not feeling the slightest tinge of guilt at the time. But at the same time, you see this religious impulse that was in there right from the start. He says, part of the money... That I used to steal, I gave to the poor, and and some books that I privately took from others uh, were books of devotion. So here he's stealing so that he can devote himself more fully to God. That's uh, another time. Actually, uh, he 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 was uh, at a very young age. He had contracted the smallpox, and as a result, apparently one of his eyes went. Misfocused, and so he looked kind of cross-eyed his whole life long. Uh, this was a conspicuous feature to his, to use the old word, to his physiognomy, uh, the look of his face, and he was made fun of, of of when he was a young boy because of that. Not just because he was of the poorer sort uh, and he was fatherless, but he had this this cross-eyed look about him, and so he was made fun of frequently. And uh, in in cases where he was mocked and made fun of. He, he said that he would go back to his house, he would hide himself away in his room, get on his knees and pray, and recite certain, s- certain of the imprecatory psalms of David. Uh, in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. So there's, again, you see that religious mix. He's a very religious young man, but um, full of natural carnal impulses that he is, in fact, justifying as being religious, as being spiritual. So that that was the state of his his mind and his heart as he was a a very young boy. Uh, From those books of devotion that he would often steal, he composed sermons. And he even said that he would practice in his room reading prayers like the Anglican ministers that he would hear because he wanted actually to grow up and become a minister at this stage, at this very, very early stage of his life. God was pleased, he said, at this time to give me great foretastes of his love, I felt great hungerings and thirstings after the blessed sacrament. Uh, but then he adds this quite significantly. I, I found myself, however, unwilling to look into my own heart. So he was, he, he was not really examining himself. He was growing up very well in kind of the, the, the outwardness and the morality of the church. Uh, although not, again, without these great hungerings and thirstings, as, as he says of himself. Well... Very much like we saw in the case of Jonathan Edwards, those youthful, strong devotional impulses didn't, didn't last. Uh, they didn't carry him all the way through. And at some point, as he grew into his adolescent years, he says, Alas, all my fervor went off. I had no inclination to go to church or to draw nigh to God, and the sense of the divine presence insensibly wore off my mind, and at length I fell into abominable secret sin. Well, that was the case that he was in when he went off to college. Uh, he, he went to college as, as, a, as a, a very poor young man, and so he didn't, uh, he didn't have the advantages of a lot of Oxford students in his day. He went uh, under the condition of a servitor, which basically is a, he was an underclass servant of the upperclassmen, and that's how his way got paid. His tuition got paid basically by being a lackey, for upperclassmen, so he ran around doing whatever they, whatever they, whatever their whims dictated that he do. Uh, so he, he definitely had this uh, self-esteem issue, perhaps at this point in his life. Well, he entered Pembroke College in Oxford. You know, if you know anything about the Oxford system, there's there's multiple colleges uh, under the heading of Oxford, all in the same general area. So he went to Pembroke College. Now, Oxford at this time was like all of England, uh, very morally decadent at this point in the early 1700s. Uh, we're out of the Puritan age, the days of Baxter and Flavel and Bunyan and Watson and Owen and Sibs. I mean all of the great Puritans. Uh, this is way past the afterglow of that time, and so England had become very... Uh, very embedded in natural as opposed to supernatural religion, the morality of it all. Uh, the new birth was a doctrine that was, was really abominated at this time from the very pulpits of the Anglican churches, the Church of England at that time. True spiritual religion, says J.C. Ryle, seemed to lie at this time as one dead in a gross, thick, moral darkness that might be felt. Well, this is the atmosphere that Whitfield came into at Oxford, and you would think that, that given his kind of uh, having backslidden from his his, his youthful uh, zeal for the Lord and for the things of God, that he would have been prime fruit to be picked by all of this moral debauchery uh, that was around him. But this is what he says: He says, "God gave me grace to withstand them." That is all the young men that were inviting him to join him in the parties and the debauchery. I began at this time to be more watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. Uh, th- this, is a, this is a very good case, and Whitfield isn't the only one, in which you come into an environment like this, and you don't yet know what you are, but you immediately, when you see it, know what you don't want to be. And so there was a, there was a sense in which the negative environment uh, had the opposite effect on him, uh, it, it repulsed him, and it had a positive effect. Actually, uh, I could, I could, I could say the same thing about my own daughter when she went to college. It was a very similar situation, and and Sue and I were so pleased when uh, we visited her in her dorm room, and she had put up hymns and uh, uh, just gave a tremendous indication that. She, she didn't yet know what she was, but she, she knew what she did not want to be, and it was not this that was around her. And that was a very significant and a formative, formative moment. And it was for Whitfield as well. He says, now my evenings were generally spent in acts of devotion, and I constantly went to public worship twice a day. Well, soon his ambition for the ministry was renewed, and he began pining to enter the ministry. Uh, accordingly he needed some ministerial friends to, to, to hang out with uh, my soul he says was a was a thirst for some spiritual friends to lift up my hands when they hung down but there in in the college environment there was virtually no one there was nothing uh, that he could he could kind of have a meeting of mind and heart with uh, except there was a small group of despised people uh, uh, ministerial students in many cases they were ministerial students uh, they were called the Methodists and they were so-called because of their precise methodical behavior they were very rigorous in their in their moral rules very timely punctual in everything and they always traveled together across campus and you know they had things thrown at them and they were spit on they were mocked and made fun of but they were just Just their faces were like Flint, uh, quite an object of admiration, if you love morality. They were called the Holy Club, as I said, I think. Well, Whitfield, as a servitor, was not allowed to introduce himself to upperclassmen. He had to be spoken to first, and so he admired them for a whole year from a distance. He looked at them, wished he could be a part of them, but couldn't, couldn't take a step in their direction at all. It would have been against the college rules. My soul longed, he says, to be acquainted with them and to follow their example. And when I saw them going through a, a ridiculing crowd to receive the Eucharist, well, as he watched, uh, one of the leading members was watching him as well because Whitfield stuck out like a sore thumb. He was a loner. He was always walking out into the fields by himself. Uh, so, so this young man who was watching Whitfield. Uh, said this about him. Years later, he wrote a poem about him. And the fact that he wrote a poem will give you a, a hint as to who it is that I'm talking about. Uh, he, he said this of Whitfield: A modest, pensive youth who mused alone in search of truth through academic groves. Well, this was Charles Wesley, our great hymnist, uh, who uh, you, you can hardly name a, a hymnist greater, uh, unless you want to throw in Isaac Watts to rival him as an as a English hymnist, they're both, uh, well, to use an analogy we've already used, kind of the Luther and the Calvin of English hymnody, Watts and Wesley. Great hymnists. I, I, I mean, my, my heart leaps every time uh, I see that we're going to see a, sing a hymn by either one of them, which we do frequently. Well, Charles Wesley, who was seven years older than Whitfield. As I said, he'd been watching him. He soon approached him and invited him to breakfast. So they went out for breakfast together, and then he soon introduced him to the other members of the Holy Club, the leader of whom was Charles' older brother by four years, and that was John, John Wesley, the great, the famous John Wesley. Uh, He was born in 1703. Wesley was born in 1703. It's exactly the same year as Jonathan Edwards was born and Gilbert Tennant. So It's a great year uh, for the birth of some wonderful and great evangelists in the history of the church. In 1728, so he would have been 25 years old, uh, John was ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church, and he had obtained a fellowship at Lincoln College in Oxford. So he was there, he had his own room, he was a teacher, and that's where he began the Holy Club in the year 1728, Uh, there's a picture of that, of the Holy Club meeting in his room, in your handout there. Well, the group, as I said, was incredibly rigorous in its morality, but it it was not Reformed a whit. It was not, not in the Reformed tradition. Wesley's views in particular, says Ryle, at this time in the Holy Club, were very dim, misty, defective, and indistinct. And there was a very strong legal strain in everything that Wesley did. So, al- although uh, they were very moral, although they were on very intimate terms with the Gospel itself and its demands, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, uh, these, these were charming maxims for the Holy Club, uh, and they were very rigorous in their, in their diligence in following the rules of Jesus. Uh, Yet, at their root, they were not truly evangelical. The the foundation of their whole peace lied not in in Christ, but in their duties for Christ. So they were very Christ conscious, but again, it was their duties that more or less was their foundation. Uh, This is a perennial issue. It, it, It really is. And it always has to be dealt with in the church. Well, Whitfield was now in the Holy Club, very excited. Uh, This is what he said about them. Never did persons strive more earnestly to enter in at the straight gate. They kept their bodies under, even to an extreme. And now I began, like them, to live by rule, to pick up the very fragments of my time that not a moment might be lost. So now Whitfield was with them together, marching across campus, being ridiculed. uh, Together... These are some of the things they did. They met for devotions every morning, opening their Greek New Testament, studying in the original language. They fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Uh, They visited the prison, the poor house, all the time doing good deeds. Uh, A really great group. But again, they they weren't yet evangelical. But some of the evangelical strains were beginning to come in. Uh, and, And some of them, as time went on, were very powerfully converted. Certainly the Wesleys were, but they weren't yet. And Whitfield was the first among them, but not yet. But he's, he's moving very, very close. He's, he's uh, very close, uh, to use the biblical language, to the kingdom of God at this point. I left no means unused, Whitfield says, which might lead me nearer to Christ. I endeavored to do all for the glory of God. Well, that's a great statement, but it's very telling because he was endeavoring to do all for the glory of God. But that's the one thing... That is impossible for someone who's resting on their duties. You, you, if you're resting on your duties, you can think you're doing all for the glory of God, but really you're doing everything for yourself. Uh, if you think about it, that's what's happening. You have your, you, not God, not God is your end, but you yourself are your end, and God is your means. God who has infinite power and wisdom and glory and majesty uh, and mercy. And justice this this God you are making your means a means to your own end and and in that light you can see how displeasing this is and in fact how abominable it is to God and how guilty a person is in that state well I mean now we're coming back to the justice of God in the damnation of sinners and Edwards sermons and how he treated his people at this time well in in such a state, and Whitfield was in this state, you, you, you can't deliver yourself out of this vicious carnal cycle. Uh, y- your orbit is all in the wrong place. You're orbiting around yourself and not God, and therefore God can't, by definition, be your end and can't be your glory. Uh, the only thing that can break you out of this cycle, uh, God has provided for, and it is, it is divine, supernatural regeneration by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. That is true evangelical faith and religion. Well, this is what Whitfield was about to find out. Uh, we're now at the end of 1734, moving into 35, uh, again, just as God's work was breaking out in Northampton. And just at this time, there was a small transaction that took place that changed everything for Whitfield, or began to change everything. And it's in this little book right here The Life of God. In the Soul of Man. It's a tiny little book. Uh, again, it's another book that I would recommend. Uh, by a Scottish minister named Henry Scugle. Well, Charles handed this book to Whitfield. The, the Holy Club members were very fond of reading old good books. That, that was one strongly redeeming uh, factor in the Holy Club. They were always reading the old religious classics. This was one of them. And so he handed it to, to uh, Whitfield, and Whitfield immediately opened the pages and began reading. He wasn't even off the first page before he says this. I wondered what the author meant. And here here you begin to see this massive accumulation of merit that he's secretly kind of using to recommend himself to God. It begins to be shaken. Uh, It's like an earthquake or a tremor is starting to happen on the inside and his whole foundation, he's aware, is beginning to wobble and topple and he's not willing to give it up. I wondered, he says, what the author meant by saying that some people falsely placed religion in going to church, doing hurt to no one, being constant in the duties of the closet, and now and then reaching out their hands to give alms to their poor neighbors. Alas, I thought, if this be not true religion, what is? So there, I mean, he was totally found out in, in the inner sanctum of his own heart. He thought that was true religion. The author is just condemning it as not being true religion at all. How my heart did rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself bankrupt. I don't know if in, in your, your history with the Lord you've ever felt that, but it's a fearful thing to feel, and it's what, what Whitfield was feeling now. Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down, or shall I search it? I did search it, and holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord... If I am not a Christian, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. And soon God showed me, he says. He read a few lines further down. He's still just in the first couple of pages. True religion is what Schuyl says here. True religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. Well, that struck the mark. That single sentence just pierced like a ray uh, into Whitfield's mind. He says, "A ray of divine light was instantly darted in upon my soul, and from that moment I knew that I must be a new creature." Well, this is the great evangelical, excuse me, doctrine of the new birth, and uh, in some ways you could you could distinguish the Great Awakening uh, from the Reformation in terms of the leading doctrine that was championed. Uh, Justification by faith alone, we we inseparably connect to the Reformation. Uh, The doctrine of the new birth is what is inseparably connected with the Great Awakening. Not that justification by faith was not integral in the foundation of it all. Certainly, we saw Edward's sermon on that subject. And not that the new birth was ignored in the Reformation. But these are the distinguishing doctrines that that help us uh, form categories for, for each. Well, this is what he's discovering. The great evangelical doctrine of the new birth, already present in Freelinghausen and Tennant in Edwards's preaching, it's what we see. The reason is because we had that cold, formal orthodoxy after the Reformation in Protestantism, not Catholicism, but Protestant orthodoxy becoming cold and formal and barren. And so the new birth, uh, was, there was a demand among Christ's servants in the ministry to, to hone in on this doctrine of the new birth, to expose the hypocrisy that was in the pews. Well, he discovered that, this doc, that, that he had to be a new creature, but it wasn't the thing itself. He wasn't a new creature yet, and he was made aware of it. This is what I need to be. So now, still being carnal, he saw it now, the same way he sought justification by faith, in recommending himself. Now he sought the new birth by recommending himself. He's, he's still using the same method. Now I've got to, I've got to convince God by something in me that, that he'll make me a new creature, that he will send that ray of the Holy Spirit and, and uh, give me the new birth, make me to be born again. By degrees, he says, I began to leave off eating fruits, and I gave the money that I usually spent in that way to the poor. Afterward, I always chose the worst sort of fruit, I wore a patched gown, dirty shoes, and so looked upon myself as very humble. For many months I went on in this state, but I began to find pride creeping in at the end of almost every thought, every word, every action. So he's very sensitive to this. The whole, and this is the Holy Spirit working. Uh, without the Holy Spirit's working, you wouldn't see that pride and that self-righteousness creeping in. You would, You would just think, what a wonderful person I am. And he was thinking that, But then again, at the end, he would sense that pride. And so now he grasped at another method that was recommended by some of the old Catholic mystics uh, during the Reformation and and before and after. Uh, And that was that in order to cease from sin, you must stop speaking altogether. Just muffle it. Don't say a word. So this was kind of a a form of quietism. And uh, Whitfield now went after this with a vengeance. He said, this is the way. So I sat whole nights without speaking at all, fighting with my corruptions, kneeling down by my bedside, offering up my soul to God. Now, instead of meeting with my brethren as usual, I went outside into the fields and I, under the trees, and prayed silently to myself, lying prostrate, prostrate on the ground. Well, presumably, this is when Charles would have been observing him and wondering why he's not coming to our meetings anymore and seeing him out in the fields when he w- might have penned or at least had the thought for penning a modest, pensive youth who mused alone in search of truth through academic groves. Well, now we're coming to the spring of 1735, the six weeks of Lent. You remember he said it was at the end of Lent uh, when he was converted. Well, here he's still increasing his mortifications. I constantly walked out in the cold mornings, he says, till part of one of my hands had become quite black with the frostbite. This, with my continued abstinence at length, so emaciated my body that at Passion Week I could scarce even creep upstairs, but I was resolved to die or to conquer. Well, he did almost die. He became very, very sick. A physician was called for, and uh, he was put to bed for the next seven weeks. During this time, he says, this, this is when God was pleased to remove the heavy load, when he was laid up in the sick bed, couldn't go out, couldn't do anything. One day, he says, and this is, this is the moment, one day perceiving an uncommon drought and clamminess in my mouth, it was suggested to me, and by that he just means it, it came to his mind, it occurred to him, that when Jesus Christ cried out, I thirst that his sufferings were near an end upon which I cast myself down on the bed, crying out, I thirst, I thirst. Soon I found that God was pleased to remove the heavy load, to enable me to lay hold of his dear Son by a living faith. Oh, with what joy! (laughs) It's just tremendous. You you see, again, it's the same pattern that you saw with uh, the Northampton congregation. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable! "...that was full and big with glory, was my soul filled. When the weight of sin went off, and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul, my joys were like a springtide, and as it were overflowed the banks." Well, there's a wonderful description of a full assurance of faith. And it just rushed in immediately in his case. And, of course, we can't say that this is the type everyone has to conform to. But here's a model uh, that just shows so clear, clearly and definedly the work of the Spirit in effectual calling and the wonderful fruit that it produces when, he, when the Spirit thrusts a man down deep in conviction and self-abhorrence and condemnation uh, and now makes God his center. I'm no longer my center. I've just been, I've just been severed from myself. And now Christ has become my center. This is what happened. Well, he was a new man at last, but his health was wrecked utterly. He was sent home to Gloucester for the next nine months uh, to recover. So he was at home, out of college, for nine months, having his health restored. And at this time now, as a new creature, a new creature that he had wanted to be for so long... He says, "Now my mind was more opened and enlarged. I began to read the holy scriptures on my knees, praying over every line and word. This proved meat indeed and drink to my soul. I daily received fresh light and life and power from above. Oh, how sweetly did my hours in private glide away in reading and private prayer, uh, praying over Mr. Henry's commentary on the scripture. So he had his Bible, his Greek New Testament, in fact, and there was Matthew Henry as well." Uh, constantly going back and forth between the two to get to get aid from one of those gifts that Christ has given to his church. Well, it wasn't only Scripture that was new, but his, his prayers became new as well. Uh, and again, I mean, I, I hearken us back to Northampton and uh, uh, Edward's own testimony after he was converted, how everything was new. Everything was new and how his people, for them, everything was new. The Bible was a new book. The Psalms were new Psalms. And here's uh, Whitfield saying uh, essentially the same thing. So now in his prayers he says, What sweet communion I now had daily with God in prayer! How often have I been carried out beyond myself with sweet meditating! How assuredly have I felt that Christ dwelt in me and I in Him! Well, that's his conversion. Now, ironically, uh, now that he knew the grace of God in truth... uh, he began to push back from thoughts of the ministry. He began to realize what an awesome and a fearful and a holy calling it was. Uh, this was something he didn't, he just had a, a gleeful ambition for it earlier on. But now it's like, this is, this is, this is the, 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 the heaviest, the weightiest calling in the world. And I can't enter into it unless I'm called. So that was his feeling. He said, oh, it is a dreadful office. I have prayed a thousand times that God would not let me enter before he called me. I know the bedside, I know the floor, upon which I have lain prostrate. I said, Lord, I cannot go. I shall be puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Again, it's not uncommon. You, you can think of Moses and, and many others in this case. Jeremiah, uh, to use canonical examples, not, not to mention all the non-canonical examples of this unwillingness. It was not until he returned to Oxford then, after this nine-month period was over, and he was struggling over this, a sense of, of perhaps, but he didn't know. Uh, March 1736, now, uh, almost a full year later, that he finally became convinced, and he says, "I am fully persuaded that this is the will of God that I should take holy orders." Again, he's, in the, he's orbiting in the cat in, I'm sorry, not Catholic, uh, the Anglican orbit here. So he was convinced he should take holy orders: I am not mine, I am his. I give up my body, my soul, my blood all to him. Well, uh, that was a ministerial commitment, but it's a Christian commitment, and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't too sharply distinguish between the two. There is a distinction to be made, uh, but to give up body, soul, and blood. Uh, to Christ is a Christian commitment. It, it is actually the bare minimum. If you think of what Jesus said, um, it's a high bar, but it is the minimum for the Christian life, and we ought not—we ought not to be too soft on ourselves on this. Not that we succeed. I'm not, I'm not saying that we're, we're all ready to, to march out and do this, but this is our calling as Christians. It, it is. It is the bar. Well, he was ordained three months later. Preached his first sermon. It was the first sermon of uh, more than 18,000 sermons in his lifetime. And I did a quick calculation on this. 18,000 in his lifetime from this point uh, would have been... He would have had 34 years until he died at this point in 1770. So that comes out to 10 sermons a week that he preached in season and out of season. It's hard to believe. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to come and, and see his, his vigorous activity, relentless activity for the gospel of Christ. And it was because, as he said, God overpowered me with such a deep sense of the love of Christ for sinners. That, that was the dynamo and the engine that drove him to preaching all these sermons. Well, that's it for, for uh, Whitfield this morning. Next week, we want to come to John and Charles Wesley, because during this time, when Whitfield was converted, they actually were across the Atlantic in America. Uh, at the new colony in Savannah, Georgia, beginning a very fruitless ministry there, in fact, in their unconverted state as Christian uh, missionaries in America. So we're going to come to their case next week and, and follow them along. So let's close in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask sincerely for your ministry to work among us by your Spirit as we hear your word and as we participate in your supper And as we sing your praises, help us, Lord, in our feebleness and in our sin. Purge us and give us the joy and the peace and the righteousness of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.